right. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I am Dr. Darren Wolf, and I am a forensic pathologist. Um, that is also another term for a medical examiner, and uh, I basically do autopsies. Some of you know me from my online presence um, at Instagram, which is um, called Anatomy and the Dead is the account. And some people have seen my YouTube channel, and sometimes it's Facebook. So uh, I've been asked many times to do a podcast, and I never got around to doing it, but there's been a lot of stuff come up recently where I felt like I needed to uh, talk to people to maybe teach a little bit um, about some of these big issues that have happened. And I think that it's uh, just more amenable to talking and doing a show rather than posting a video on Instagram or showing a picture on Instagram. So basically, why are we here? You're here because you chose to listen to this podcast because you must have a morbid curiosity about death. Um, or perhaps you're in a death-related career like mortuary science. Uh, maybe you're a death investigator, a coroner. Um, you might be someone who's just interested in forensics or you're a student. Um, you may be a medical student or a nursing student. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons to want to be interested in the uh, area of forensics. But I think importantly, it's to be noted that this podcast is for anybody. Um, I The way that I teach, the way that I've always taught ever since uh, I was in medical school and teaching younger medical students um, is that I like to teach in a way that anyone can understand. So sort of a layperson or a professional. So if you're a layperson with no experience and no understanding of medicine and you're just curious to listen about uh, what goes on in the world of autopsy, this is a good podcast for you. Likewise, if you're a professional or you're thinking about being a professional in that career, um, this is also a good podcast for you. Uh, so... You know, um, I want to I want to just say that this podcast, which is called Knife After Death, um, it's going to be a little bit different uh, than other death related podcasts. I mean, I don't go as much into history um, as some people like to talk about the history of the dead and and all the sorts of interesting things about the burial practices and, you know, the history of autopsy or surgery. Um, I think that those topics are pretty well worn. At this point. So what I want to do is I want to offer you um, kind of a journey with me where I am the kind of guide using my hands and my eyes and the things that I do during my autopsies um, and during in death investigations for you to learn about disease in the human body. Um, mostly going to be talking about uh, cases that are in the news um, some historical cases, like I know people are always asking me about doing serial killers and, and various things like that. We will get to these sort of things. Some of them will be my personal cases and my personal experiences. And basically, I just, you know, like I said, I want us to go on a journey through the human body head to toe and just talking about it through the ways that we die. And so, I mean, I guess really the goal is to dispel some myths about death and dying, uh, to realize that, you know, this is a, a bit of an unusual career for people to conceptualize, but it's a ne necessary career, obviously. It's, uh, it's in the news more often than 
we can imagine, and yet uh, people don't quite understand what goes on during an autopsy. So I'm definitely going to be hitting those topics really hard. And, you know, in short, I just want you to uh, feel like after you've listened to me talk about these cases, after we've went through seasons together, um, hopefully I'll do more than one season, that you really feel like you understand what goes on during a death investigation or the autopsy of a human body. So right now, um, the show is just me. It's just me and my voice and the things that I'm thinking. I don't have a co-host yet, and I'm not going to be interviewing anybody, at least today. Now, eventually, as the show grows and people become you know, more um, interested in maybe coming on and giving their opinion, or maybe I, I uh, want to have some banter, then I'll bring someone on. But for now, uh, you know, I feel like there's been a lot of urgent issues this year, and I kind of want to just get started. So for the episode we're going to do today, I had something different in mind. I was going to talk about the difference between cadavers and corpses, um, and then I was also going to talk about the, my motivation for being in this field. That's one of the most asked questions for me is, why would you go into forensic pathology? So I was going to give a nice little, you know, uh, wade into the water episode about kind of my motivations, like psychologically, um, to become a forensic pathologist. But then there's been a very important case that's occurred in the news, um, one of the most historic events in an already historic year. Um, of course, I'm speaking about the incident in Minneapolis with uh, the man named George Floyd and the and his untimely death. And there's been a lot of controversy surrounding the autopsy findings, which I have addressed um, on my YouTube channel and on Instagram, but it just doesn't feel like I'm addressing it to the depth that I want to. So that's why today um, I am going to go over the autopsy report, and I'm going to do it as a forensic pathologist, um, as a commentator on this field, and basically translate the most important parts for you. I'm not going to be going over every little detail, but I want to talk about autopsy reports and um, how they're created, and this one in particular, also in context with the preliminary reports that occurred immediately after the autopsy by the Hennepin County Medical Examiner, and then the second um, so-called independent autopsy that occurred. So all that information together um, and separately, we're going to try to understand and make sense of what was found at autopsy. And then I like to sort of pontificate on how I think that could impact an eventual trial. So uh, without further ado, we are now going to uh, start with the Hennepin County uh, Medical Examiner Office final autopsy report, which was um, released I believe on June the 3rd, um, today's June the 4th, it was released yesterday, and uh, we're going to start right on the first page. All right, so now let's talk about this autopsy report. Um, first of all, what is an autopsy report? How is it created, and what does it um, uh, consist of? First of all, 
when we do autopsies, whether we're forensic pathologists or we're hospital pathologists, we always have to produce an autopsy report, which is part of the medical record. And in the case of a, a legal autopsy, it is part of the legal record. So this becomes a legal document. Um, it's used in trials, of course, and it's also used in things like insurance settlements. Um, and of course, in general, it's just helpful for the family who are related genetically to the person who died to find out all their underlying medical conditions. So you want to be as thorough as possible and you want to describe everything in a way, at least this is my personal opinion, is that you should describe everything in a way that when somebody reads the autopsy report, they can picture everything you're saying. So we like to be as descriptive as possible. Now, this autopsy report on Mr. George Floyd occurred, um, the autopsy actually occurred on May the 26th, so um, about 12 hours after he was pronounced dead. And um, there was a, an initial preliminary autopsy report, which um, caused quite a stir. Um, the media, um, I, and I don't like to demonize just globally the, the media, you know, just as a term, but I think what happened was it was reported that his phrasing, the pathologist's phrasing was no evidence of asphyxia. Of course, I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, but uh, no evidence of um, asphyxia or strangulation. And they, um, at least some of the news outlets and, and really more how people digested it after that was that there was no asphy asphyxiation despite it you know, being on tape, like the tape is there. And that underlying conditions and or drugs is what caused his death. Now, for those of us who are in the field, we heard, we saw that preliminary report and we didn't think anything about it because it is very common, in, especially in a high profile case like this, to uh, pin the autopsy final, the final report, manner of death and cause of death until all the information is back. So that would be toxicology information, um, looking at the slides, the tissue slides under the microscope, um, completed investigation, that sort of thing. Um, I've made comments how it's the, the phrasing is not something I would have used, um, but I understood it. However, many, many people did not. And they felt that this was some kind of attempt at a, at a cover-up or to blame the victim Um for, for his demise, and that is simply not the case. Um, of course, I, I talked about the preliminary report in a YouTube video. I'm not going to go too much into that right now, but I am going to put it into context with this report uh, because obviously when the second autopsy came in, the independent autopsy, then it um, it kind of complicated things further because that pathologist just straight away said it's asphyxia uh, due to mechanical compression of the neck. Now, before I get too deep into this, I do want to say that that first preliminary um, was correct in that there was no physical evidence of asphyxia. So as I go through this report, we're going to talk about what we would see as physical evidence. We know there was evidence of, of a compression of the neck because it's on tape. And that's an important thing to note is that in forensics, you can have evidence of 
uh, of something, of some cause of death, um, if it's on tape, if it's confessed. And the example that I gave was suffocation. Um, when we look at an autopsy of a baby who has been suffocated, we often don't have that history because what happens is is that the the caregiver says, oh, look, I found the baby dead. I don't know what happened. We do the autopsy and we don't find any physical findings. And then at some time later, uh, the person confesses and said, well, you know, I actually suffocated that baby. Then you can change the cause and manner of death to uh, asphyxia due to suffocation and then, of course, homicide. But without that confession or without it being caught on tape, it usually ends up being an undetermined type case. So um, the point being is that not all the information a pathologist uses to issue his his or her diagnosis is strictly from the body itself. It's in context with what is found um, in the other evidence. All right, so let's go on with this autopsy report. I've talked enough about introductions here. So this autopsy report is uh, constructed in a way that is very similar to other autopsy reports I've seen and my own autopsy reports, which is that there are um, findings up front, which are kind of a summary of everything that that uh, the pathologist found that was abnormal. And then after the summary, there's all the really detailed information about uh, the body head to toe. And I have to say, this is an extremely thorough autopsy. Um, I have done many, many autopsies on my own, including homicide, uh, hundreds of homicide cases, police action involved cases, um, you know, all sorts of legal cases. And this autopsy report is um, as good as it gets in terms of thoroughness. There's no question about that. So I'm just going to start at the beginning, and the first part says blunt force injuries. Now, um, that term can cause people to think a certain way. When you hear blunt force, we think somebody's been hit with a hammer, somebody's been hit with a baseball bat. No, blunt force literally means it is a blunt force, and that could mean stubbing your toe. That could mean... uh, you know, uh, dropping a, a hammer on your hand or something like that. So that doesn't mean that an implement was used, like a crowbar. It just means that the force was not due to something sharp, you know, like a knife. It doesn't mean that it was, uh, you know, due to a gunshot. So it says cutaneous injuries of the forehead, face, and upper lip, um, mucosal injuries of the lips. So that's like the inside of the lips, uh, blunt force injuries to the shoulders, hands, elbows, and legs and pattern contusions in some areas abraded, it says, of the wrists consistent with restraints. So basically, if you compare this to the video, the man, uh, of course, we we don't have a complete history of what happened before he was uh, subdued, but there was some, possibly some struggle in that process. And then when he was put on the ground, he was face down, and of course, his face would be, you know, on the the asphalt, on the pavement there. And these injuries are consistent with that. Um, these injuries don't suggest uh, that he was hit necessarily. Um, it could be, but they don't strike me as um, inflicted injuries. Uh, probably they're injuries due to the uh, subdual process. And then, of course, there's um, contusions of the wrists, um, which are due to the the handcuffs of course 
So those are the blunt force injuries. Then the pathologist moves on to the next part, which is natural diseases. Now, here's this is a, a part that I find very interesting. And as a, as a side note, um, there are people very angry at me for saying that I found his natural diseases interesting. Now, um, people apparently interpreted me saying that as uh, the natural diseases are the cause of death. Uh, no, that's that's not what I was saying. Natural diseases are important in cases like this because when they go to trial, um, the first thing the defense attorney often asks about is natural disease processes. Um, the second reason why natural disease processes are very interesting to me for this case is that the second pathologist, um, which I have not seen his autopsy report, um, there was a there was two pathologists actually, and uh, um, I haven't seen if they've issued a joint report together. Um, if they do, we'll talk about that. But he at his press conference said that there were no underlying uh, natural diseases to contribute to the cause of death, and um, uh, it was at odds with the initial report, which said there was natural diseases. That's actually a pretty big distinction uh, because. Um, at some point, they will have to take this to trial if he if he does not plead guilty, and they have to go over basically every line of the autopsy report. And so, for one pathologist to say that there's no underlying diseases, does that imply that you know he didn't look hard enough for natural disease because the this autopsy report um, outlines natural disease quite well? Uh, the first is arteriosclerotic heart disease multifocal severe. Okay, so what that refers to is that there are a kind of three major coronary arteries on the heart, on the surface of the heart, the left anterior descending, the right coronary artery, and the left circumflex artery. Um, so arteriosclerotic disease is the occlusion. Occlusion means blockage within the vessels of the heart. Multifocal means it was in many areas of those vessels and severe. Uh, of course, you know, severe. Uh, I can't explain that any better than than what it's stated there. So this is a severe arteriosclerotic heart disease. And I'll, if you didn't see my YouTube videos, I'll explain why that's important. The heart, of course, is a muscle which needs oxygen. And in fact, it needs a lot of oxygen. If you cause a blockage of blood flow to that muscle, it cannot get enough oxygen. And that is a problem. If you do not have enough oxygen and blood coming to the muscle of the heart, it gets irritable and it can go into an arrhythmia, okay? A dysrhythmia, meaning abnormal heart rhythm and can't even be fatal. In fact, um, I would say my most common autopsy overall, without question, is an autopsy where there is arteriosclerotic or hypertensive heart disease and the person had a fatal arrhythmia and died. So this is significant underlying disease. Again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that natural disease is at the root cause of this man's death, but that it is important consideration given, given the scenario, which is a restraint scenario and one in which he may have suffered uh, from difficulty breathing. Uh, if you cannot breathe, you cannot take in oxygen. And if you cannot take in oxygen, you are not delivering it to your heart. And therefore, you're going to go into cardiac arrest. All right, moving on. Hypertensive heart disease. It says um, cardiomegaly, which means an enlarged heart. 
540 grams, it says. And uh, uh, as I read the autopsy report, uh, he's quite a tall man. He's um, six foot four, I believe. And so the heart um, will be larger as the body gets larger. Now, in a person who's five foot two, 540 grams would be a monstrous heart. Um, but in a man who is, um, you know, six foot four, 540 grams is not enormous, but it is slightly above average by 20 or 30 grams. And apparently it says clinical history of hypertension. Hypertension is another word for high blood pressure. So this man had high blood pressure, which is evidenced by the increased size of the heart. Um, as I've explained before in other videos, the heart is a muscle. And um, if you uh, contract that muscle against pressure, so that's your blood pressure, it will actually thicken uh, and make the heart uh, enlarged. Uh, there was also a pelvic tumor, so a tumor in the pelvis, but that did not play any role in the cause of death. I'm not going to talk too much about that. And then uh, part three is, now this is where he says there's no life-threatening injuries identified. Now, um, that's interesting, right? Because obviously he's dead. And so um, this comes to where he, the pathologist had originally said that there's no um, evidence of asphyxia or mechanical you know, trauma. And so basically um, it's, it's kind of um, here he says no facial, oral, mucosal, or conjunctival petechiae. Okay, so what are petechiae? Petechiae are little bursts of blood with the blood vessels burst due to increased pressure. We see that a lot when there's a strangulation death. Anything that uh, collapses the blood vessels in the neck and then the blood um, pressure above the level of the compression is increased. And as the heart continues to try to beat, um, the pressure, you know, uh, will go up and down as, let's say, you're manually strangulating, uh, strangulating someone pressure goes up and down, up and down, it bursts the blood vessels, and you see these little dots. They look like tiny little dots in the conjunctiva. So if you pull your eyelid down, that's the conjunctiva. The oral mucosa, i.e. the gums and the lips and on the face. So if you see, uh, sometimes you'll see it if somebody hangs themselves, you'll see the petechiae. Um, there are no injuries to the anterior muscles of the neck or laryngeal structures. So the larynx, of course, is the what we call the voice box. And the anterior muscles of the neck are what in medicine we call the strap muscles. So when there's um, a strangulation type death, um, you will see hemorrhage in those muscles of the neck or you'll see damage to the laryngeal structures, namely the thyroid cartilage, which is also known as the Adam's apple. And then there's a, a U-shaped bone. It's almost like a wishbone type structure right on top of your uh, larynx. And it's called the hyoid bone. And a lot of times in um, neck compression or strangulation type deaths, it will be broken. In this case, it wasn't. Um, there was no scalp, soft tissue, skull, or brain injuries. So no acute head injuries. And then um, he goes on to say that um, there was a fracture in the rib due to CPR because after, um, you know, they realized he wasn't breathing, EMS came and they do CPR. And uh, very often ribs are broken during CPR. This is, um, we'll talk about this many times. If you listen to this podcast, we'll talk about um, 
what happens with medical intervention. Sometimes there are some um, injuries to the body from medical intervention. And then there were incisions uh, that uh, the pathologist made in the posterior, that means the back of the neck, and the lateral or sides of the neck, the shoulders, the back, the flanks, the buttocks. And these. Uh, this is extremely thorough. This is not a standard procedure we do in a regular autopsy, at least most people. Um, but this is one that involved restraint and involved possible asphyxia. So all of these incisions are done to see if there are bruising in those areas. Um, so no life-threatening injuries. So in other words, no physical evidence of the neck compression, whereas we, we do have the evidence on the video. Now, moving on, this one is one that hit the headlines. Viral testing shows positive for um, 219 in COVRNA, which means COVID, COVID-19. So um, actually, they're probably testing most of their bodies. Uh, some medical examiner offices are testing all their bodies for COVID. And in this case, he was positive. And I, immediately, I had a lot of people you know, email me and say, hey, does this have anything to do with his cause of death? And uh, to me, I think that was more of a an interesting finding that they wanted to put in the headline because what's the two biggest stories of the year, COVID-19 pandemic, and then now this um, unfortunate George Floyd death. So um, it didn't really mean anything um, in terms of this man's death, um, but it's kind of an interesting uh, finding, which I will address in just uh, toward the end of this. Now, um, next was hemoglobin S quantitation. Um, I'm not going to go into uh, hemoglobin and sickle cell anemia genetics, but basically um, there are different types of hemoglobin, hemoglobin A, and then if it's if you have a sickle cell gene, it's hemoglobin S. Sickle cell um, trait or sickle cell anemia can be problematic um, for, for people who have that um, because in states of low oxygenation, the... Um, you know, the, the red blood cells will go from a kind of a donut shape, a disc shape into a sickle shape. And um, I don't think that this was an, acutely a problem for him here, but um, it was interesting to see that he had a sickle cell trait, which is very common in those of African descent. Um, as an aside, um, and I know some people listening to this will will know this, but if you have sickle cell trait, you actually, um, it's what is called a genetic anti-malarial, meaning if you have that uh, type of hemoglobin, you are less likely to get malaria. It was an evolutionary thing. Uh, people who um, kind of, you know, were in areas of high malaria had a better survival if they had the hemoglobin S trait. So that is just a, a little fun fact for you there. Now, next is the toxicology part, and I, I really want to address this because um, I had a lot of people messaging me and emailing me about the toxicology mention up front on that first um, report, and they were really angry because they felt that the toxicology, well, they're just trying to say that, you know, Mr. Floyd had this stuff in his system, and therefore he's a bad person, and he's to blame. No, that is absolutely not the case. It is. I, I can't even imagine doing an autopsy without doing tox. Uh, maybe in the old days, they used to just defer on tox, but now we pretty much get toxicology on every single body. And in this case, uh, of course you would, because this is going to be um, probable homicide. 
It's going to be a police action type death, and you have to know what is in the person's system. And I don't think anybody um, reads that autopsy report and sees the toxicology and makes a judgment about that person. I mean, frankly, um, my personal autopsies, I mean, I would say greater than 50%, maybe close to 70% of people that I autopsy have some kind of illicit substance in their system. Um, but what it does is it gives an insight to possible behavior because certain drugs can um, affect behavior one way or the other. Secondly, certain drugs can have effects on your physiology. So let's just start with the uh, report here. It says fentanyl right off the bat. Um, fentanyl is a very powerful opioid drug. Um, it's about 200 times more powerful than morphine, which itself is an already powerful opioid drug. And then um, the second compound is norfentanyl, and the third compound is 4-ANPP. These are breakdown products of fentanyl, um, and fentanyl being an opioid can cause respiratory depression and cardiac depression and somnolence, which means uh, sort of you know a sleepy state. Uh, the fourth one listed is methamphetamine, which we all know. We refer to that as meth, um, 19 nanograms per milliliter. Um, that is a, a small amount. And then next is um, THC-related compounds. THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. Um, the sixth compound is cotinine, uh, which is the uh, breakdown product of nicotine, so in cigarettes. And then seventh is caffeine, which is self-explanatory. So really the ones that stand out here are fentanyl, methamphetamine, um, and to a lesser degree, THC. But... Um, I, I don't attribute, when I see this, I do not attribute the uh, behavior, uh, you know, like, oh, okay, well, this guy, he's, quote, on drugs, end quote, and therefore he deserved to be restrained. That is not what I am saying, and I don't think that anybody in the medical examiner's office is saying that either. They have to report these numbers. But when it comes time to trial, um Toxicology is, I would say, a question that I get asked at 100% of my murder, murder trials uh, because they have to know what is in the system of the victim. Did that affect his or her behavior in any way? So, um, you know, I just want to put that out there that it, I have to refute a little bit that um, the toxicology results were released in order to, quote, make him look bad. Um, that is just simply not true. We release toxicology results on every single case. Um, the second autopsy that was done, I believe that doctor said that none of these compounds uh, played a role into the death of, of uh, Mr. Floyd. And um, I'm not really going to say whether or not I think that's true. I mean, a person could argue that uh, methamphetamine or fentanyl could have affected his heart function. And if you are as being asphyxiated, that is kind of a big deal. You need uh, uh, as much heart function as you can possibly have, as much oxygen as you can have, that sort of thing. Um, so next um, is we are going to talk about, well, they did the urine drug screen. Um, there was some morphine there. Um, not sure. I obviously haven't looked at this guy's medical record, so I don't know if they tried to give him morphine or something, uh, you know, when they were resuscitating him. That would be unusual. Let's put it that way, but could indicate some usage. Um, 
but there's nothing that unusual about the talks report. I mean, it sounds like um, at the scene there was some concern for intoxication. Um, and again, it, that does not um, justify the actions of uh, any kind of criminal uh, negligence and restraint resulting in a death um, because there are lots of people that have substances in their system. Uh, one interesting thing about the um, the final uh, note there on the preliminary find or on the uh, front find the front page findings is that um, the doctor says the decedent was known to be positive. Uh, when we say decedent, that refers to the person who they autopsied was known to be positive for um, COVID NRA um, RNA. Sorry, that's ribonucleic acid. That's the genetic material of the virus on April the third. So we're talking six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, he was COVID positive. And then the doctor goes on to say PCR positivity for COVID uh, RNA can persist for weeks. And so um, they think that this, in fact, was an asymptomatic PCR. That's the test that they use, positivity from the previous infection. And not that Mr. Floyd was um positive and, and actively symptomatic for COVID and that it had anything to do with his death. So then after this, the, now is what we call the body of the autopsy report, which really goes into a lot of detail. And I'm certainly not going to go over every line, but Mr. Floyd uh, talks about his height and weight. He was six foot four, 223. So kind of a big guy. Um, and then it goes over just for those of you who haven't seen autopsy reports. I mean, this is broken into the in external examination and the internal examination. The external examination is uh, exactly what it sounds like. You don't touch the body and you describe everything you see. So we're talking about, you know, hairstyle, hair color, eye color, um, you know, condition of the teeth, presence of scars, presence of piercings, uh, description of tattoos, things like that. So, um, you know, it's it's this is the part where you really are describing the person in a way that um, when somebody reads the report, they can picture it in three dimensions. Now, there was um, extensive evidence of medical intervention in this case, which is important to note because um, we know that Mr. Floyd lost consciousness and EMS was called and there was a quite aggressive um, attempt at medical resuscitation. And of course, this uh, it was too late. Um, it did not have an effect, and he was unable to be uh, revived. Now, um, the other section of the autopsy report, so you have the, the external examination, and then pathologists very typically have a section just referred to as evidence of injury. And so basically you go head to toe, um, both externally and internally, and you talk about the injuries that you see. And uh, for Mr. Floyd's um, evidence of injury, it's quite extensive uh, because as pathologists, we have to we have to list everything we see. I mean, the tiniest little abrasion that's the size of a pinpoint, we have to describe that. The tiniest little scrape, um, even if it's if it looks like it's not recent, we have to describe every single thing head to toe. And so. He goes on for um, about two pages describing various scratches, various abrasions, some contusions. There were some contusions on the face. 
And what I see here, and I'm not going to go over every abrasion and contusion because we wouldn't even do that in court, but the idea is, does it fit with the scenario of him being restrained and then pinned to the ground? And all of these injuries um, are fairly superficial. So we're talking about abrasions and contusions. Um, There were a couple of small mucosal lacerations in the mouth, and that does fit with what we saw on the video. There was no extensive injury, such as uh, fractures of the spine, fractures of the posterior ribs, or that is the back part of your ribs, fractures of the neck, or very deep hemorrhage. Um, So now, basically, at this point, we go to the internal examination on this case. And the internal examination is exactly what it sounds like. So as a pathologist, when we do an autopsy, we do... Uh, We look at the organs of the head, the neck, the chest, the abdomen, the pelvis, and any other areas of the body that needs to be dissected. So in this case, um, you know, we, some pathologists start with the head and go down and other pathologists uh, start with the body organs of the chest and the abdomen. And then they sort of do the head last In this case, they start with the head, and um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the order of the autopsy. That's just the order that it's put in the report. Um, There was no injuries or pathology to the brain, basically. So when we open the head, we're going to look for scalp injuries. We're going to look for deep uh, bruises of the head, uh, subcutaneous tissue, the temporalis muscles, which are on the side of the head. You're going to look for skull fractures. None of that was present. They didn't have any... um, hemorrhages in the brain itself, which would also indicate kind of a blunt force injury to the head. Now, next, this is probably the most important part of the autopsy is the neck dissection. So um, I can just tell you it says layer by layer dissection of the anterior strap muscles of the neck discloses no areas of contusion or hemorrhage within the musculature. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a very um, specific forensic procedure called a forensic neck dissection or a layered neck dissection. So why is it called that? Because the muscles of the neck, if, if some of you have had anatomy, you know this, and if you haven't, you can Google it or look up an anatomy book. The muscles of the neck are in layers. And basically what you do is you take your scalpel and you dissect each muscle and you reflect it all the way back and you look at the um, the top or the outward facing portion and then the underside of the uh, muscle itself. And you look for hemorrhages. You look for rupture of the muscle. And this is most commonly seen in what we call manual strangulation. So when somebody has put their hands around somebody's neck and really squeezed it, um, you can see rupture and hemorrhage of the neck muscles. Um, and we did not see that uh, in this case. It was not described. Uh, Next is the thyroid cartilage and hyoid bone are intact. So the thyroid cartilage is um, more prominent in males. We call that the Adam's apple. And then the hyoid bone is, like I said, the U-shaped bone on the top of the larynx. And those are two areas we look at when we're worried about neck injury due to um, strangulation or compression. And they were intact. So overall, and then they talk about the thyroid, they talk about the cervical spine, And it's all free of hemorrhage. So there is no physical evidence of injury to the neck. But as I've, um, you know, described before in some of my videos, 
you don't necessarily need to see those injuries to suffer an asphyxial death. Um, the classic example would be a suicidal hanging. So if someone were to take a belt or a rope or something around their neck and hang from a beam and die and be found and autopsied, most often the neck, it looks perfectly fine. There's no, um, I mean, there is a ligature mark, but there's no hemorrhage in the muscles and there's no fracture of the hyoid bone. Um, occasionally you can see fractures in the hyoid bone, but I'm not going to go into that right now. We can talk about that later with um, another famous case that was in the news last year. Um, so again, we go through the respiratory system. We go through the body cavities here. The lungs were quite heavy. So the lungs were um, a total of over 2000 grams. Lungs for an adult should be a total of about 700 grams. So this was about three times normal. And we see pulmonary edema or pulmonary congestion with um, the cardiac failure because basically what happens is when the heart uh, stops uh, moving blood forward, there's still blood return uh, into the lungs and then it, it uh, can cause pulmonary congestion. Also, um, opioids such as fentanyl or morphine can cause that kind of congestion. Now, now we're going to get into the specifics of the heart. So the cardiovascular system here, we have um, the heart was, of course, heavy, 540 grams by a little bit. But most importantly here, we have 75% um, occlusion in um, the left anterior descending artery and a 90% occlusion in the right coronary artery. So this would qualify as severe um, arteriosclerosis or atherosclerosis and um like I said before, if you have blockages in the arteries of your heart, you are going to be more likely to develop an arrhythmia. And so early on, people were were um, upset because they, they were suggesting, they thought it was being suggested that Mr. Floyd was having a heart attack and that the death wasn't related to the um, kneeling incident. And actually, some people got uh, angry at me for, you know, talking about the heart. But um, the fact is, if the man, we didn't know at the time if the man may have been having a cardiac condition at the time of his arrest. And so that's why, to me, the heart disease was important. Um, it doesn't appear that there was um, active myocardial infarction or heart attack in this case. But it is worth noting that his heart disease was severe enough to where if you're going to restrict oxygen to a heart with that much blockage, that's going to be a major problem. Um, and again, he obviously went into cardiac arrest and had an arrhythmia. Um, the rest of the internal organs are fairly straightforward, fairly normal. Um, they, you know, I'm not, it's not really worth going into every detail and talking about the adrenal glands and things like that, but basically staying with the important, uh, relevant to the case portions. Now, um, they have a section called special procedures where they talk about in incising or cutting into the wrists to look for um, hemorrhage. And there was some hemorrhage in the wrist, which is not surprising because um, there was cuffing of the hands. And so, um, you know, when that happens, you're going to have some, some hemorrhage. It's, it's, when we think of hemorrhage, I think sometimes people think of blood squirting out um, like crazy. Um, but no hemorrhage or hematoma is just a collection of blood. It can be a very small collection of blood and people use the term subcutaneous hemorrhage. And then of course the, 
the body was extensively dissected to look for those type of blunt tissue uh, or blunt force injuries. And, um, you know, it's, it, they just weren't there. And as we saw, I mean, the man was kneeled upon, apparently kneeled upon maybe by multiple police officers and that kind of force isn't going to produce the pressure um, necessary where you would see the physical findings, but could be a um, enough pressure to actually produce death. Um, keep in mind, it only takes about 10 pounds of pressure to cut off the vessels of the neck. So um, that is, you know, obviously there's going to be more than 10 pounds of pressure if somebody's kneeling on your neck. Now, um, I did want to address... Um, you know, I, I used to be a surgical pathologist, so I did want to address the heart, um, the tissue slides. So what happens is at an autopsy is we take sections of every single organ. And what I mean by sections is little pieces. We put it in formaldehyde. It's a solution actually called formalin. And then we actually make slides out of those on glass slides, just like you did in science class. We look at them under the microscope and we can make diagnoses based on that. Well, I was very curious if Mr. Floyd might have been having a myocardial infarction at the time of his arrest, which could have caused, you know, could have hastened his death. But if he was having a myocardial infarction, you should see some cellular changes. Uh, notably, the early cellular changes you would see are what's called neutrophils. Neutrophils are the cells of acute inflammation of your body. And so if you have an acute inflammation, I mean, it can be anything. You can have an infection or you can have uh, some kind of, uh, you know, injury to the body. Neutrophils are very early cells to respond to that. And so if we had seen some neutrophils or some unusual looking um, heart cells, um, then we, we could have thought maybe he was having an early heart attack um, but in fact, the microscopic examination of the heart did not reveal any of that. Secondly, um, we heard that the man was COVID-19 positive, and we were learning more and more that COVID-19 is a blood vessel disease. And what I mean by that is they are, it looks like there's evidence that the virus is directly infecting blood vessels and it's causing blood clots, which is why you have people who are dying of heart attacks, people who are dying of pulmonary embolism, people who are dying of stroke when they have COVID. And there was some um, controversy, people saying that um, death certificates are being filled out inappropriately because if somebody dies of a heart attack and has COVID, they shouldn't be called COVID. Well, in fact, we know that COVID is now a blood vessel disease. So if you are clotting off blood vessels in your heart, then by definition, you're going to cause a heart attack. So in this man's case, George Floyd, there was no evidence of clots or what we call thrombi in the lungs or the heart or the brain. So um, COVID-19 was kind of what we call a red herring. It's something that's there but doesn't really mean anything. It takes your attention away. So overall, um, that's the summary of the autopsy report. It's mostly what we know, um, but it's more detailed information. And so, um, you know, I, I hope with this one being released so fast that it, it, uh, it kind of calms down the, um, the controversy that had occurred early on because, um, you know, uh, early on when that first uh, preliminary came out, I mean, people went nuts. I don't know if you were on Twitter 
but there were a lot of people who suddenly had uh, degrees in medicine and forensics um, who uh, were experts on that um, and, and really raked the whole autopsy report over the coals. Understandably, I can see the the phrasing would be misconstrued by people who are not in the field. And that's the takeaway I, I want to tell any listeners who might be thinking about going into forensics or medicine. Um, but frankly, it, I think it applies to any job. Whenever you're doing something, think about it being scrutinized two, five, or ten years from now. You want to be able to defend your work. Um, and so, you know, specific to forensics, when I do an autopsy, I think about it being in court two years from the day, and I have to sit there and answer to it. So <laughs> I try not to do any odd phrasing um, or or anything that could be possibly controversial. I'm not going to talk too much about the legal implications on this case. I know they've uh, changed the, the, it was a third degree uh, murder, and then now they move it to second degree murder. I've had people ask me legal questions, and I do love the legal side of forensic medicine, and I will do podcasts on that. But for the most part, I feel like um, now is not the time. I kind of want to focus on what my lane is, which is the autopsy report. Uh, so I hope that this has helped you understand it a little bit better. If you um, want to see my descriptions of the the preliminaries for both um, the first autopsy preliminary released by Hennepin County or the preliminary, which was sort of just a press conference by the uh, consulting independent pathologist. You can find those on my YouTube channel, which has the same name as this podcast, which is Knife After Death. So um, this is episode one, and we are now done with episode one. It's not the episode that I was going to start with, but I feel like this was urgent enough to go ahead and kick off with a, a case that's in the media right now and one that has uh, global societal implications and that we can learn from. And this is just my little piece of it. The The medical examiner piece is a one part of the pie, uh, which uh, is going to reverberate for a long time, I have a feeling. And hopefully we come through it better. We come through it having learned something. So uh, I hope you enjoyed this, and um, we will have that, um, what was supposed to be the inaugural episode, we will actually do that next, hopefully. And uh, thank you for listening. I greatly appreciate it.